Would you open God's precious holy word to the Revelation 22? I want to review what we did last time because it's in the greater context of what we look at tonight as we complete our study in the book of the Revelation. So I have the fonts in a, in a gray color to let us know we've already done this. And then verse 13 is transition to the next part, which leads then into the benediction of the book. Remember that uh, this part, verses 6 through 12, is an appeal to the believer. Then there's a transition in verse 13 that speaks to both believer and unbeliever as beginning in verse 14, the appeal shifts from the believer to the unbeliever. And then the benediction of the book closes it out. So here we go. We looked at it last time, but let's remind ourselves. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things that must come to pass in quickness. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is the one who keep, keeping or guarding the words of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, am the one hearing and seeing these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, showing me these things. And he says to me, see that you not. I am your fellow bondservant and with your brothers, the prophets, and with those keeping or guarding the words of this book of this of the book of this prophecy worship God and he says to me seal not the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near so we remember we we said this meant that it's to be proclaimed it's to be taught it's to be preached it's not some strange bizarre book it's something that we are to relish in and study proclaim and understand the one being unrighteous, let him be unrighteous still. And he who is filthy, let him be filthy still or more. Remember the word. And he who is righteous, let him practice righteousness still. Epi or more. Let him practice, let his righteousness be upon his righteousness. Epi. And he who is holy, let him be holy more still upon his holiness. Now, here's the transition, which takes us into the part that we'll study tonight. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give each, to give to each as is his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So the challenge or the appeal to the believer is, I am, I, he's God. Uh, and he's the one who calls everything into creation. He is the one who brings everything to his consummation. He is the judge. Not only according to John 1, did he create the first heaven and the first earth according to the revelation. And we studied that a few weeks ago. 
He is the one who has created the new heaven and the new earth. You're not going to escape your creator slash judge. And that is the appeal now to the unbeliever. I was with you before you were born. I'll be with you after you're dead and you will stand before me. Alpha and Omega, first and the last, the beginning and the end. Okay, now, here begins more deeply the appeal to the unbeliever. Blessed are those washing their robes. In other words, those who are saved, those who have been cleansed, who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That will be their right to the tree of life. They shall enter by the gates into the city. Outside, now this is a generality. So you have those who are granted entrance into the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the saved, if you will. Then you have those who are not granted access. Matter of fact, a list like this is given in another part, uh, in a couple of places in Paul, I think, uh, certainly in 1 Corinthians, I think in another place as well, Galatians, we studied it. So here are those who are not permitted entrance. They're in the lake of fire. Outside, number one, are the dogs. Now, I know you're going to say, do you mean Fluffy won't be in heaven? In a spiritual and in a judgmental sense, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, and I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says, and I believe the Bible. The references to a mongrel, and this reference, the only other time when we see those who are under judgment in the Bible called dogs, it is in the book of Deuteronomy. It refers to male homosexual prostitutes, temple prostitutes. So that's the only other place where there's a definition. Then I suppose, I don't suppose I know the best Commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Number one, the dogs. Number two, the sorcerers. Remember that word in the Greek text? Uh, it is pharmakoi, from pharmakeia. The word pharmacy, pharmacist, pharmaceutical comes from that Greek word. And it ties magic or enchantment with, with drugs, drug enchantment. If you study pagan religions, you will find that gross immorality, especially sexual misbehavior in every way that you can imagine, is part 
of religion to paganism. Especially when you study, of course, Baal, the Old Testament accursed false god, and the others as well, and they they don't evolve, they devolve into the paganism uh, from the Canaanites to the Greeks and into the Romans. You see the same kind of worship, so-called, activities, all of it to a false god or goddess. And this is what, that's why they had temple prostitutes, both male and female, and they, had, they were burning all this incense. So a part of worship was, was to burn certain kinds of so-called incense that would just kind of dope you up, right? And in that state of mind, hallucinations were easily um, tricked. People were easily tricked into hallucinations by those who were trained in those opiates, burning them inside the temple. And they sure felt good when they came out the other side. But it was, it was drug enchantment. It was, it was sorcery. And, and the biblical meaning of sorcery according to the Greek word, is tied to drug enchantment, mind-altering things. Well, those people are on the outside. The sexually immoral, pornoi, porno, pornography, all that comes from that word. And the murderers and the idolaters and everyone loving and practicing falsehood. Paul writes uh, to the Thessalonians, I think, in 2 Thessalonians. He, anyway, Paul writes and he says, uh, they believe the lie, the false thing. Now, in, in the greater context of what Paul is writing, he's speaking of those who are following a delusion. And the delusion is to follow a world system that people substitute for Christ. So, if you don't follow truth, you follow falsehood. And to follow it is to love it. So everybody who is concluded to be under falsehood cannot make it into this city along with all of these others. And there are other groups that are expanded more than this in other parts of the New Testament. So here's the appeal. Those who have had their robes washed, you see, we are cleansed, of course, by the blood of Christ. And those of us cleansed have the right to the city. Inside the gates, tree of life. Those otherwise 
do not have access. So here's the appeal. Have your robes washed in the blood of the lamb. Let your focus be on the tree of life and entry into that city. Otherwise, you're on the outside. That's a terrible place. We've already seen in a couple of chapters previous to this and studied the description of the lake of fire. Now, this is, a, this is an appeal and this is a summary. The, the place that is outside the New Jerusalem has already been described and we saw that. And here, here is an account of those who are there and they collapse into every kind of sinful um, activity and behavior and conduct. And it came from their minds being fallen creatures in need of salvation and they didn't come to the truth so as to be saved. Therefore, they loved and practiced falsehood. Nothing that is false or defiled or unclean, none of that it's going, is going to be allowed into this city. It's going to be on the outside. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify these things to you in the churches. Let me stop here. After the glorious description of the risen Christ in the Revelation 1, the direction was given that seven churches receive the revelation and that this message, this book, be published, written seven times, one for each of these seven churches. And they were strategically located churches. We studied them. They were at the crossroads of the Roman Empire where there was a lot of trade, a lot of money, a lot of people of importance. And if somebody passed through those very important cities, they would carry this message with them if they heard it and listened to it and, and uh, go with the message. So as we come to the close of the Revelation, the book of this prophecy is to be proclaimed in the churches and by the churches and it is the responsibility of the churches to unseal this book. Now what does that mean? First and foremost, the book reveals to us how magnificent and awesome God the Son is. You remember, I've told you many times, the book of the Revelation, in the very first chapter, we are told that it is a gift from the Father to the Son. God the Father gave God the Son the revelation of who He is. The only way that we can see the the majesty and power and authority of, of God, the son who is called the lamb in so many ways through in so many times through the revelation. The only way we can fully appreciate his deity is for the father to permit it to be so. Always remember this. 
the will of God the Father is executed by God the Son and the accomplishment of it all is empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. That's how the Godhead works. So it is the will of God the Father for the church through the pen of the divinely inspired last living apostle, John, 90-something years old, on the Isle of Patmos. It has to be an apostle who finally is inspired to write the last book of Holy Scripture. So, thus commissioned, John writes it, everything, just he did what he was told to do, write everything that you see, write it down. Send it to the churches, these seven churches, and it'll go from there. Spirit of God saw to it. Here we are today, looking at it, reading it, studying it, because it went to one of those seven churches and finally made its way to us across space and time. Testify everything that you've seen. Well, what have, we, what have we seen with John? We have seen the glory of the Christ, the power, the, author, the immense power. By the time we come to this point in the Revelation, at the very closing verses, we have even seen his power not only to dissolve the old universe, but his power to create a new universe. And we saw how we were sitting there while he did it. He had the power at the great white throne in the Revelation 20 to call up the dead from Hades, the unbelieving dead, for the final judgment of the unbelievers. Cast them into the place that was prepared for the devil and his angels, and they are there forever in torment. What power. The author of creation itself, the author of life and death and judgment and creation, the king of kings and lord of lords, the lamb who rules. And out from his throne comes this great power and exudes this glory that lights up everything such that we were taught there is no need of the sun nor the moon, nor even for us to hold a lamp in our hands because there is no night there. The glory, the light of the Lamb is the light thereof. The glory of the Lamb is the light of it. What power? Just from His existence. He energizes and empowers and enlivens everything. And all of those who are His in the new heaven and the new earth. Testify. Tell people about this Christ of God. Because those who are saved, remember what we saw? Those who were filthy, let them be filthy still. Those who are righteous, let them practice righteousness still even more. Finally, at the end of all of it, Christ is the center of everything. If you have rejected truth and you have accepted falsehood, 
not only are you lost, you're very lost and eternally lost. And there is no hope for such a person. And for those who have come to the truth, they're not just saved, they're very saved, absolutely saved. We'll talk about that more here in just a little bit. I am. Ego, I mean, I am. Takes us back to the Old Testament, Yahweh. I am the root and the offspring of David. Well, how, how, how's, what? He's, he created David and he is the son of David. God Almighty has assumed the responsibility of saving his own and keeping them for himself because God the Father gave them to God the Son. That's what the Bible says. John chapter 6. The bright morning star. There is no darkness in the Christ. None at all. David has a very important place and the throne of David is the place where the son of David will sit enthroned forever. But the son of David is also the one who created uh, David. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. And so the appeal to the unbeliever continues. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Now some see this as a, as a, as a twofold a, a, a duality in its imperative. Here's what I mean. Saying for the Lord Jesus to come, but also saying for the unbeliever to come. Personally, I prefer within the context to think, of course, the spirit works in the church. Paul identifies, and of course, the revelation identifies the bride as the church. So the spirit working in the bride, unsealing this book, which is the close of the canon of scripture, makes the appeal everywhere. This is our job. The spirit of the bride say, come. It's in the imperative, which is just a command the church has the authority to stand upon the authority of the word of God and call out to humanity by command, come. Now God will use that as he sees fit. It is God who makes the effectual call. Not everybody to whom we appeal is ever saved, but some are, come. Now after that person comes, he has a personal responsibility. And let the one hearing, let him say, come. So the church with the, the spirit within the church moves the church and the church has a responsibility to preach the word, to evangelize and to make the appeal everywhere. So does the individual Christian, the individual believer. Let him say, come. Who may come? the thirsty one and let and the one thirsting let him come 
Let the desiring one take the water of life freely. Dorian, without cost, freely. Salvation is all of grace. We cannot do one thing to save ourselves. Not one thing. We cannot do a thing to keep ourselves saved. It's all of Christ. And we call people to Christ, this wonderful Christ of God who has been so beautifully described. Unlike at any other description before in the scriptures, who has been so beautifully described in the book of the Revelation. He has been unveiled. What heaven knew all along, what the Father knew all along, now we know because God the Father gave it as a gift, this unveiling, this revelation. He gave it as a gift to His Son so that we can be empowered with this wonderful knowledge of the person of the Christ. So now, having seen the consummation of all things, Having seen how the times of the Gentiles, the times of the nations come to an end in that final seven year period, so thoroughly described in the Revelation. Having seen how the world system collapses under the wrath of God. Having seen how the elect are called and preserved and the reprobate are absolutely damned and cast into the lake of fire. Having seen the absolute authority of the Christ, we have this one job to call people to this Christ who is God manifest in the flesh. And the revelation does not hide his deity who he really is. So when we make the appeal, who may come? Whoever wants to. I can't put that desire in people's hearts. God does. I don't. But the will of God overwhelms the will of man. And God calls you will, you will never find in all of eternity anybody who ever wanted to come to Christ was disallowed from coming to Christ. You won't find it. It's nowhere. So from the human perspective, divine election, that's God's phrase. Whosoever will, that's man's call. We understand that a lot better than we do the other side of it because it's God's thing there and we're not God. So when we make the appeal, do you want to come? Then come. You want to drink, drink of, the, of the water of life? Then come and take a long drink of the water of life. Are you thirsty? Come. Do you want to? Come. You don't have that desire apart from the Spirit of God awakening the deadness of who you are in trespass and sin and causing you to be born again. That's a God thing. So it's easy to just to call out, whoever wants to, come on and be saved. Come to Christ. Christ never rejects the one who wants to come to him. Never does. Not in all the scriptures. So here at the close 
of the Bible itself, this invitation from heaven. I testify to everyone hearing the words, the prophecy of this book. If anyone should add to these things, God will add to him the plagues written in this book. Now, I, I wanted to tell you how secure we are in Christ, so I want to go on to the next verse here. And if anyone should take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and out of the holy city, those who have been written in this book. Okay, now we got to look at this in the original text, in that Greek up there. Because if I just look at that, I'm going to say, wait a minute. I didn't think the pen that wrote names in the book of life had an eraser. We were told back in the Revelation 3 that he would not ever blot our names out. What is this about? Okay, so we have to go to the Greek text. It's beautiful. Here we go. Should add. That's a Greek word up here. That, that's, it's a epithe. There it is right there. Should add. Stay with me on this. That is in what is called in the Greek, in the Koine Greek. That is what it's, it's in the, it is in the aorist active. That means it happens, and when it happens, it happens effectively. And it happens one time. The next Greek verb is translated will add. Epithesi. All right, remember the first one is in the aorist active. This one is in the future active. This is what God will do when this time comes. God will add. Now, we get to the, we get to having been written. Gegramenas. That is in the perfect passive. <laughs> okay. Some idiot comes along as the, all right, that's in the aorist. That's a one-time thing. It's effective. Oops, shouldn't have done that. Because God then will do this. Because it was always that way. Perfect tense. It's a continuous action that never stops. Perfect tense. And it's in the passive in the passive, it means that the subject is acted upon and the subject does not, is not the force who acts upon himself. He is acted upon by an exterior external force. In this case, it's God. So that carries us then to this part. If anyone should take away, there it is again, a fellow. There it is again, aorist active. One time effective action. Then that means future active God will. 
Why? It says, take away his part from the truth of out of the Holy Spirit. Of those, all right, let me go back up here. Of those identifies those who are talked about here in the having been written, same thing, gegramenon. That is in the perfect passive. The divinely inspired word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, it's very difficult to write the aorist tense and all those things. It's very difficult to write those things. It's hard to understand in English. But an effective one-time thing, very foolish, then God has to. He will because of those who have been written. And when it says it's in the perfect passive, and it's talking about those whose names are in the book of life, it means that it is something that just goes on and on. It never stops. It never changes. It's always the same habitual thing. Saying that it's in the passive means that those who, having been written, are acted upon, not by them. We didn't write our names there. We didn't do a thing to write our names there. God did it. So, God is a subject and, uh, who writes, he is the force who writes and, the, and those whose names haven't been written. We don't have anything to do with that. Here's what God says. If you're not in this book, you could even collapse into a horrible thing that will prove why you're not in this book. Because God will show you, but those having been written, perfect, passive. Have always been there, will always be there. Never a time when they weren't there. Remember where the Bible says, the book of life written before the foundation of the world. So the very language of what is said is proof that those whose names have been written in this book can never be unwritten. And it's proof that those who add to or take away from this book, the final book of the Bible, it's proof that they were never part of that because they were aorist active and they tugged on Superman's cape, future active. And the solidity and the security of God's people is in the perfect passive. I hope I didn't, I hope I didn't lose the whole purpose of the message here. Okay. Well, I guess the bottom line is having been written, just put it this way, perfect passive, all right? We are perfect because God made it that way and not us. They are not there because they are aorist active 
and God is future active, which makes a mess of aorist active and keeps secure the perfect passive. Well, if it don't mean anything to you, it's beautiful to me. Oh, I'm perfect and I'm passive. <laughs> All because of God. God makes me perfect and I can't do anything about it, so I'm just passive. Having been written, that is the absolute eternal security of those who are the elect of God. It never changes. Now that's part of the appeal. So let's, let's, put, let's put a little bit of this together. The revelation closes the canon of Scripture. The Bible is not an open-ended book. We can't keep adding things to the Word of God. I'm always telling Christians, be very careful when you say, God said to me or God told me. You better be careful. Because if what you are about to say is not exactly like that written in anywhere in the Bible, you just might have made a mess out of yourself. That's why preachers, and this is an old joke I've told you a lot of times, carry a fishing sinker. I feel lead, I feel lead. In my case, it's a bullet. Now, we can, be, we can feel impressed to do things. We can believe that we're being unctioned, guided, whatever. But we cannot, we do not have the authority. Who in the world would we be? We cannot add to the Bible. This closes it out. It is so disturbing to me. That there are people within Christendom who so flippantly claim to add a new thing to the Word of God. Some revelation that is not the revelation. It's a very, very serious, serious thing. Because God is, the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, and all this, if you had a, it'd be in red letters. I, the Lord Jesus Christ is saying this closes it out. This tells you everything about who I am, how I save, and how absolutely the saved, the saved are. Not because of who they are, but because of who I am. Not because of their power or goodness, but because of my power and my goodness. We come utterly helpless to the throne of grace and we collapse into the presence of a sovereign God and beg for salvation. And the only way we had the power to do that and the wherewithal to do it is because God gave us that power. God gave us that wherewithal. Faith, you read the epistles, faith is a gift. It's not something you can conjure up. It is a gift from God. Repentance is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift. It's all of grace, 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 grace. And so we trust Christ 
for the rest of our lives. We don't lean on any, on, not on our own understanding. We don't lean on anything, our own behavior. We trust Christ. We follow Christ. We obey Christ. And the Spirit of God strengthens us who comes to abide in our hearts and in our lives when God calls us into his salvation. It is all by the power of God. You cannot then add or take away. This book closes it out. This is the story of the Christ. Nothing can be added to that. The will of God is absolutely expressed by revealing to us the consummation of everything. Everything comes to a close, to an end. And we find ourselves in the new heaven and the new earth. How in the world could I add something to that or take away from it? How, how, how could I? God has already put his stamp on it and says this is how it's going to be and you can't change it. So here's this great appeal to close the Bible out. We have the fullness of the revelation of God today. What a blessing. He makes his appeal to the believers. He makes his appeal to the unbelievers. And here's how it, it listen, it closes with grace. The one testifying says these things. Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all the saints. Amen. Now, before we have our deacon prayer time, in the Revelation chapter 1, you know, I started all this. I was preaching through 1 Samuel on Wednesday night, and I was going through Exodus on Sunday nights. And I just shifted gears when we all got stuck at home. And I just kept doing it. But if you can remember, I think when I started, I was just sitting in front of my fireplace or something when I'm just sitting there. Nobody knows what I had on from there down. It just looked like a real nice shirt. <laughs> but in the first chapter of the Revelation, if you've stayed with it, if you've heard it, and if you've read it, God promised you something. He promised you a blessing. Blessed is the one who hears and reads the words of this prophecy. Oh, I've been blessed. I don't know about you. And this is about the 80th time I've gone through the revelation. But it blessed me and I hope it blessed you and now it's deacon prayer time.